Welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's podcast, week two of Mark's gospel, as we are meeting Jesus in new ways. This week, we are going to be looking at chapter two, but understanding that the Messiah that we meet in Jesus, while he brings his friends and brings community in, becomes a lonely Jesus in Mark. And what does it mean that we serve a lonely Messiah? Let's listen in to Reverend Dr. E.B. Arnold as she moves us through chapter two. Hello, friends, and welcome to the second week in our eight-week study of Mark's Gospel, as today we explore Mark's lonely Jesus. As we watch throughout the Gospel, Jesus moved from crowds to cross. It may seem strange for us to consider Jesus being lonely, because Mark, from the very get-go, pictures a very famous Jesus. Just look at some of these scenes that he captures. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee, chapter 1, verse 28. Continuing the story, he says, That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or were possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. So we get this image of multitudes tearing at this rabbi wanting a healing touch. The story continues in the very next pericope. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him, and when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. Already out of the gate in the very first chapter, we see Jesus as desired by the masses. We see him as being very, very popular. He's performing miracles. He's releasing people from demonic possession. He's healing people with just one touch. And in chapter, at the very end of chapter one, we see him perform this miracle where he cleanses a leper. And the text tells us, that after the man told everyone what happened when Jesus had cleansed him of his leprosy, he says here in chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, he began to go out and proclaim it freely. This is the man with the, that had the leprosy. And he spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but had to stay out in the country. And people came to him from every quarter. We can already see the gossip chains in these small towns forming as people were telling their relatives and friends and neighbors, you know that there's this man that can heal you. There's know that, the, know that there's this man that can set everything right. And so in chapter two, we really get the fullest picture of just how popular Jesus became. He preaches to huge crowds, and any sort of building or structure he goes into, there is standing room only. So the text tells us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he had come home. And so many gathered there that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralyzed man lay. 
Wow, the house was so full. They couldn't even get close to the door. It says there were people standing around the door. So they had to climb up on the roof and dig through the roof. Now, we're, we always tell this story with an emphasis on the friends, that this is how great their faith was. And this is what good friends they were, that they would do anything to bring him to Jesus. But for our purposes today, it's important for us to realize the picture that Mark is painting of what's going on around Jesus, that everywhere he's going, he is playing to a packed house. He is immensely popular. The next story that's being told is Jesus going out and gathering disciples. Now, he's already called some of them, but it says he went again by the sea. And the whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. And as he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Mark is doing a great job at not only demonstrating how many people that are following Jesus, but also how many kinds of people are following Jesus. We already know that people who are sick or hurt or are in need of healing are following Jesus. We know that fishermen that he's called by the Sea of Galilee, they're following him. We know that there are people in synagogues who are devout people they're following Jesus. And now we find out that he's even calling sinners and tax collectors and the dregs of society. They're following him. So we get this picture of fullness, not just how great were the multitudes, but how diverse and how varied. And they all recognize in Jesus something that they want, whether it's healing, whether it's accurate and authoritative teaching, or like Levi, whether it's that he's making space for them when they are people who are on the outside, but everyone recognizes in Jesus something that they desire. And like I said, healers are very popular. So as we continue through the rest of the chapters, we see that so much of what Jesus does is healing. And this is where he probably draws his biggest crowds. Just like Jesus in Matthew is the teacher, and so he draws his biggest crowds when he's teaching, Jesus in Matthew in Mark's gospel very much identifies as this healer predominantly, and the biggest crowds he draws are when he heals. Now notice, Mark tells us that it's almost a burden, almost a physical danger to Jesus how many people are following him. Now, listen here, this great multitude comes in Mark chapter 3, 7 through 10, and he tells his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crush him. For he had cured many so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. Notice that word for. They were pressing in so tightly because they knew he could cure them, because he had cured so many. So we see here this equivalence. Jesus is very popular as long as he is healing people. He is very popular as long as, we will see in a moment, he is feeding people. 
And I think we're going to start to get an idea of when things begin to change. The apostles gathered around Jesus. This is in Mark chapter 6. And Jesus takes them to a deserted place because they had, it says, they had been coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And when they saw the boat that went away to a deserted place by themselves, and they, now many on the crowds were saw, saw them coming and going and recognized them and hurried ahead on foot. And as they went ashore, Jesus saw this great crowd and he had compassion for them because he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So we notice here that even though these crowds are somewhat dangerous to Jesus, they press in on him so that he can hardly breathe and he and his disciples can hardly eat. His driving motivation is compassion. And I think we have to remember the pivotal statement that Jesus makes in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think we need to remember that that word life doesn't just mean that he's going to die for people, but that he's going to live for them as well. And so even when he's tired, even when he uh, needs to have time with his disciples, even when he can't breathe, his driving motivation is always compassion for the crowds. And of course, we hear the same thing happen in Mark chapter 6, verses 53 through 56, that he gets out of the boat once they've gone to the other side and just listen to the desperation of the people. People recognized him and rushed about that whole region and began to bring the sick people on mats to wherever they heard he was and wherever he went, into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that he might touch even the fringe of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. Jesus is very concerned with delivering on his feelings of compassion for the crowds. We hear even again, I love all of these descriptions. It says that anywhere he went in Mark chapter 7, he could not escape notice. This is a very conspicuous Jesus. In Mark chapter 8, we hear again about Jesus' compassion for the crowd. This is when he feeds them yet again. These same people had been following him. Jesus has gotten so used to these crowds being around him. It must have seemed, and it certainly seemed to his disciples, that these crowds would never go away. There is nothing that would make these crowds leave this Messiah. However, martyrs are not as popular as healers or as people who hand out bread. And here, at the end of Mark chapter 8, we begin to see a switch. This is the first time that Jesus predicts his own death, and he tells his disciples. Now listen as I read this passage because it's very, very important to Mark's gospel. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. 
he called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And that's Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. Now notice, he's telling his disciples this really um, unexpected, and we might even say rough news. Look, I know that everything looks good right now. We've got lots of crowds around us. We're very popular. Everyone wants to see us and be part of this movement. But the actual purpose of all of this is that Jesus the Messiah is going to undergo suffering and going to be rejected, not received, not popular, rejected, and he's going to be killed. But after three days, God is going to raise him from the dead. And notice Mark says, he said all this quite openly, wanting to make sure that everyone really understands what the trajectory is. Now, we, as the readers of the gospel, we've known from the beginning where this is all going. But for those that are in the narrative, this is a major shift of perspective. And notice how it says he called the crowd with his disciples and then said to them, if you want to become my followers, not just people who are healed by me and go home, if you want to actually follow my path, it is not going to be about popularity or acceptance or anything that is going to make your life easier, and in that sense better. But you will have to deny yourselves and take up a cross and follow me. These are words that begin to winnow the size of Jesus's followers down. And what we will notice is that Jesus will continue to say this, he will actually repeat this another two times. And here he says this from uh, um, Mark chapter 9. So just one more chapter later, it says he went on and didn't want anyone to know where he was going because he was teaching his disciples saying, the son of man's going to be betrayed into human hands. And it says that his disciples did not understand what he was saying and they were too afraid to ask him. And I wonder, what does that mean they were too afraid to ask him? I think on one level, I think they were certainly concerned about Jesus. And they don't want to see him die. But they also understand that they are followers of Jesus. And in the last chapter, Jesus just said, not only is a cross in his future, but there is a cross in the future of everyone who comes after him. And I think they were afraid to ask him to explain this even more clearly, even though he's saying this fairly clearly, because they're afraid of what the answer is. And they're afraid of acknowledging it and afraid of embracing it. And then he predicts his death yet a third time. It says they were on the road going toward Jerusalem. We know we're getting closer to that time of the cross. And it said they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. They know where this path is taking them. Even if they don't know all the nuances, even if they don't quite know what all of it means, they know that it's not going to be easy and they know it's not going to be smooth. And he took the 12 aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, look, 
we are going up to Jerusalem, and there the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Notice how this third and final prediction of his death, Jesus holds nothing back. Whereas before he said, I'll be betrayed into human hands and killed. Whereas before he says, I'll be rejected and killed. Here, Jesus goes into the gritty and gruesome details. I'm not just going to be tried by my own people. I'm going to be handed over to strangers. I'm not just going to be rejected and killed. I'm going to be beaten and mocked and spit upon. And so as the time of the cross comes closer and closer, Jesus is becoming even more and more revelatory about what that's going to look like. And notice all these times, there's this element of fear on the part of his disciples. That they're now understanding this shift that was that's being made every time Jesus describes the fact that he's going to die is they're turning from what looked like full crowds to an existence that's looking lonelier and lonelier. In fact, there's a, a really important and poignant moment where this is all captured in one story. And this is oddly the story of Palm Sunday. The day that we describe and celebrate Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord and laying palm branches on the ground and making this beautiful celebration for Messiah Jesus as he rides in to the holy city of Jerusalem. And all that indeed happens. And of course, it says there were many, many people spread their cloaks on the road. Many people were worshiping and raising their hands and spreading their palm leaves. So we get the crowds. But then it says, then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went back out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, this is such an anticlimactic scene. The other synoptic gospels, when Jesus rides in on the donkey and goes to the temple, Luke and Matthew both have Jesus cleanse the temple. He takes his whip. He drives out the money changers. He turns the tables over. He, he follows that momentum of the crowds and he goes in and there's this crescendo of overturning tables and you can hear the money scattering all over and the coins plinking on the stones. But Mark keeps this dichotomy. He keeps this strange juxtaposition, all these crowds. And Jesus walks into the temple and it's well, it's practically empty. Hardly anyone's there. He looks around at everything, but nobody's really looking at him. Nobody is really following him. He's kind of this lonely figure observing, this lonely figure taking everything in very quietly. Such a juxtaposition really shows us this transition that Mark has, that even from the beginning, Although these crowds were around Jesus, this lonely disposition has been there all along. 
because Jesus has always been fixing his gaze on what will happen in Jerusalem. So no matter how many disciples were around him, no matter how many crowds came to him, he's always been looking towards this moment and understanding that this was coming in his future. And it's interesting. Um, we've often heard that old adage that you can be lonely even in a room full of people. And I think Jesus in the midst of a Jerusalem that was ecstatic to see him could still be lonely because he knew what his responsibility was. In fact, not only would the crowds fall away, but everyone who follows Jesus in Mark's gospel deserts Jesus. In chapter 14, Judas leaves and seeks to betray Jesus for money. In chapter 14, verse 50, all the disciples, it says, run away and leave him in the Garden of Gethsemane alone. That includes one follower of Jesus who, as he was in his desperation to run away and abandon Jesus, had only been wearing a linen cloth and someone grabbed it to try to catch him and he ran right out of his clothes and ran off naked. That's this really poignant story of how desperate Jesus' followers were to get away from him, to distance themselves from him. In Mark 15, chapter 8, and verses 12 through 14, the Passover crowd that had so desired Jesus to come in now actually prefers a criminal to Jesus for being released. As Jesus hangs on the cross, it seems that even God has abandoned him because Jesus cries out in the words of the 22nd Psalm, God, even you've abandoned me. Why? Why have at this moment you not shown up? And then even after the crucifixion, the women, when they get to the tomb, even though they hear the news that Jesus has risen from the dead, that God has brought him back to life, it says they run away and they tell nobody. Even after he has gone to the cross, people are still falling away. And we may wonder why Jesus would walk such a lonely road and lead such a lonely life. In fact, on the cross, we can argue that not only does Jesus feel isolated from all of the crowds and all his disciples, not only does he feel abandoned by all those people, including God, I think there's an element where Jesus even feels disconnected from himself. Listen to what happens to Jesus while he's on the cross. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and build it back in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, Well, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. And even the people who were crucified with him also taunted him. Did you catch that in there? He saved other people, but he cannot save himself. Jesus is on a path to give his life on this cross. And so as a result, he even has to let part of himself fall away. Throughout Mark's gospel, he's been a healer. 
He's been a savior. He's been a miracle worker. He has indeed saved other people. And here, his identity as that savior and as that healer falls away. We might argue that Jesus even leaves himself. That is indeed a very lonely Jesus. And then the moment that it comes for him to ultimately give his life, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, of course, my God, my God in Aramaic is Eloi, Eloi. And somebody is hearing this. And of course, there's lots of people standing around and they mistakenly think he's calling for Elijah. And someone says, well, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. And of course, we know that he doesn't. No one comes to save Jesus. Mark has indeed fulfilled his picture. This is a very lonely Messiah who even within himself, as he knows the cross is in his future, has an internal loneliness as people drop away. And even here on the cross, knowing that no one is coming to save him and he dies alone. This Mark has given us not the picture that we get in Luke's gospel where Jesus pronounces forgiveness for those who hurt him or the thief on the cross saying, I want to be part of your kingdom. No, not for Mark. For Mark, this Jesus had to die alone. And we may wonder why. Why is that necessary? It wasn't necessary in, in Luke's gospel. It wasn't necessary in John's gospel. So why would Mark think it's so necessary? Well, I think what it is, is he wants to show two things that Jesus knows and that Jesus clings to as he goes through this. And these things are sort of highlighted in, in light of the fact that Jesus is dying such a lonely death. First of all, Jesus knows what true greatness is. So this is, like I said, that pivotal statement where Jesus talks about the whole reason for his being in Mark's gospel. But we're going to back up and read the verses right before it. And it says, Jesus called them, his disciples, and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. And their so-called great ones are actually tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I think it's very important that we remember this. This is such a very programmatic statement that Mark makes. But when he says here, if you want to be great, you must make yourself as a slave. Crucifixion in the Roman world was a death that was reserved for slaves. It was not a death that you could actually legally give to someone who had higher status. It was what you did to people who were worthless. It's what you did to people who had no social power. It's what you did to people that you saw as disposable. And so, Jesus, knowing that if you want to be great, if you really want to live into the greatness of God, you have to make yourself 
the most unworthy looking person. You have to make yourself the very least. And what could be less than dying the death of a previously famous and celebrated rabbi dying alone on a Roman cross? There could not be anything lesser. And so for him to do that, he in God's eyes would be truly great. And he would live into what God had for him to do with the greatness he had been given. Another thing that Jesus knows is Jesus knows true trust. Did you notice that in all of the statements of Jesus's death, when he says, look, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be beaten. Jesus never fails to also mention that God is going to raise him from the dead. Jesus knows that he trusts that the way is to the cross, but that it won't stop there. And that his trust is that as he is obedient to God, God will be faithful to him. And it's very interesting because throughout Mark's gospel, we see Jesus coach other people on this type of trust. So a man who has a son with a demon possession that causes him great pain and suffering comes to Jesus and he says, if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who trusts. And immediately the father of the child cried out, I do trust. Help my lack of trust. Later, the disciples, it says, were greatly astonished and said to one another, if it's so difficult to actually please God, if it's so difficult to get into the kingdom of God, if it's so difficult to actually be one of those that God trusts, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, you know, for mortals, it's impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. And then I think it's very interesting that when Jesus comes to his hour, where he is distressed and anguished, when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he is betrayed and arrested, it says that Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. All those times that Jesus was coaching other people on how to believe, on how to trust God, on how to entrust oneself to God, I wonder if all those times he was also encouraging himself, if he was also coaching and reassuring himself. Because what's interesting about these three things is they all come very close to Jesus's three predictions of his death and of his resurrection. So I think that we, as we follow Jesus, we can understand that trusting God means both trusting that we will be called to do very hard things. But at the same time, that same trust knows that God has us in the palm of his hands and God will be faithful to us. And so I think it's fitting 
that as we look at how Mark ends his story, it's this trust that we see come out on the lips of the young man at the tomb. You remember the story. The women come to the tomb, and as they enter the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed, but he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. Jesus, this lonely Jesus, embodied trust in God. And even though he knew the crowds would fall away, and even though he knew that there was a cross on a hill waiting for him, and a brutal death alone, he knew that God's power and God's faithfulness could reach into the grave, that nothing is impossible for God. So I hope that this encourages you. If you're going through a season of loneliness, know that even in God's seeming absence, you can still cry out to him. And when we go through seasons in the church or in our world where we feel isolated, know that there is no place that God's power and God's faithfulness cannot reach. And that is a good word for us this week. I can't wait to see you again next week as we talk about Mark's very emotional Jesus. Have a great week and I'll see you then. Hey family, I am Pastor Jeremy and I'm here with your other pastors and Dr. Evie and welcome to your week with St. Luke's. Um, we are here today to talk about, to continue our sermon series on Mark, but also uh, to delve into the second chapter which, uh, where we're talking about Jesus, the lonely Messiah. So let's dive right in. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for having me this week. And this is such an interesting passage to talk about. Uh, Mark chapter two, we found out in the beginning of Mark's first chapter in verse 28 of Mark's first chapter that Jesus is getting famous. You know, he is he is living the dream of anyone who's been on American Idol, um, <laughs> uh, which is kind of an ironic thing to say about Jesus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Rabbi Idol. Yeah. yeah. And Everyone loves him. And in chapter two, um, rightly so, we talk about Jesus being a really good friend. Uh, Jesus calls Levi in this chapter, who's a tax collector, and he goes into his house and has a big party with him, much to the chagrin of the local religious establishment. Um, Jesus does a lot of healings. I mean, he's obviously being a good friend, and he is packing out the places. Like the house where the the man who's paralyzed, his friends bring him in. It's so packed, they can't get through to see Jesus, and they dig through the roof to lower him to be healed by Jesus. Uh, And the crowds, it says, are in chapter 2, are so thick that he can barely breathe. And he, he has all these desires. It says many were following him. And so we think this is all about Jesus's abundance of friends. And yet the theme that we talked about in the lecture this week is how Mark presents Jesus as a very lonely Messiah. Uh, as we move through the text up to uh, Jesus's passion, the closer he gets to the cross, the fewer people stick with him. 
until even God, he says, has forsaken him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this is a hard uh, emotion, I guess, to wrestle with when we think about this lonely Jesus, even in the midst of a crowd that he knows will desert him eventually. Is Mark discouraging us from following Jesus or from emulating Jesus? I mean, this is really depressing, E.B., I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that this is the Jesus that I want to see, right? <laughs> so, I don't know. I think we're given a reality of what it, means, what it looks like to be a disciple. And mm-hmm. we're also presented with the idea that the temptation to put down the following of Jesus is something that's prevalent and, and that nips at our heels when we commit to being a disciple. Yeah. Well, you know, isolation uh, happens to us in so many ways. When we get a new diagnosis, uh, when there's a loss of life, um, when there's a loss of job, when there's a lost period, we tend to isolate ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, we're created for community. And so when I uh, when I think about this this aspect of Jesus um, and what this rough Jesus that we talked about last week and and it's immediate and it's it's fast and it's and it's gritty and he's touching and there's some isolation that can happen when you are authentic and raw and real um, where where society and people might say oh I don't know about that person they don't follow the social norms that we talked mm-hmm. about last week that 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 that's seems to be that Jesus experienced this and I experienced this in so many different ways and uh, and, I, and I may as a disciple of Jesus Christ too it's just a little hard to swallow and depressing but it's also relatable again I think it's very very relatable mm. well, I, when I when I think back to how the gospel of Mark was framed for me in seminary I remember my New Testament professor talking about the the question in the gospel gospel of Mark being what does it mean to be a disciple that mm. that's that's what some of what Mark is is answering and so last week we get this idea of the the roughness that you don't have to be all cleaned up um, but I think you see with Jesus here that it's it's not about being understood or being followed necessarily even though we think of discipleship as followership as following Jesus um, but Jesus is surrounded by people who as they see more and as they hear more they go I don't I don't know. I don't know. This is, this may be more than I understand or want to do, or you, you crossed one too many boundaries for me, Jesus. And so what you're talking about of him having people deserting him little by little, I think it's, it is asking that question of what does discipleship look like? And it, 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 we think of, you know, devoting your life to Jesus, making it easier. I think we, we have this picture in our head of Jesus forgiving us of our sins. That's great news. Mm-hmm. But it's the then, it's the now what, that starts to, to get harder and harder. And people who have lived lives of, of discipleship, when I talk to people who, you know, are in, um, you know, in the, the last third of their life and they talk about, you know, a life of discipleship, it, it hasn't gotten easier for them. It has, it has gotten more challenging um, in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting for me because I love to look at Jesus in terms of leadership and what leadership looks like. And leadership often if it's if it's good leadership, it does draw the crowds and it it, it invites people in, but it is also lonely and, and isolating. It because there is only so much you can you can there's only so many places people will follow you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're leading the right way, you're going to go into spaces 
and go take people into directions where some people are going to follow fall off mm-hmm. um, because you're t- what it means is you're, ch- you're challenging them um, and you're challenging them to go deeper, whether it's into their relationship or into the work of justice or into more integrity into their own lives. Um, and so what's interesting, I think what Mark is encouraging is a discipleship that recognizes that they're not just followers, but that they're leaders. Yes. And and it's interesting, as we've been talking about lead your life, people are like, I don't want to be a leader. And I'm like, but everyone <laughs> you is. You are leading you your life in some direction. Yes. yes. So what, what is your, what what are you leading with? Are you leading it intentionally or are you just Correct. leading by leading default? By default. Right. Right. Exactly. right. And, and people are afraid of that. And I think that's what Mark is doing is Mark is saying discipleship is not just about following someone around it it is but with the intention because Jesus does leave them (laughs) and says now you are the leaders and that is the point is that Mm -hmm. at some point we follow so closely that we become the leaders that Jesus creates and Mm -hmm. and are willing to recognize that we are called to lead sometimes and and lead in ways that people must choose Mm yeah and, and if, if we jump back, you know, part of it is is the, the riskiness we see with Jesus taking risks to, to lead. Um, and if we jump back to our Advent series, we saw women who, who decided to lead their lives and were willing to get it wrong and were willing mm-hmm. to try things and to, to but, but they, they knew they wanted to lead intentionally. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, the kind of courage that, that Jesus is inviting us into um, is are we going to be, are we going to be people who are willing to stick with him mm. even when it gets hard, even, especially when it gets hard, mm-hmm. even when it, when it crosses our boundaries, mm-hmm. even when it pushes our taboos, whatever our, our personal challenges are there. Yeah. And I also think about like, so the pushback that he begins to get here in chapter two is from the Pharisees, which may be his kind of theological crew, mm-hmm. uh, the people who raised him and uh, theologically and, and, and then the attack, you know, the, these, these leaders of the faith. And, and I think about uh, when we encounter Jesus or we preach Jesus, we get pushback. We're like, but Jesus said that. Like, and, and people, I this right? We get. If you read the I'm Bible your church, like, but I was quoting Jesus. Jesus said it. So there, there's, there's some of that, that as I guess as pastors we can relate to because I just preached what Jesus said, and like the people are getting really upset about that. And not that we're Jesus, but but like if we're if we're leading as Jesus yes, calls us to, right. this is very relatable. And if we're if Jen, you and your leadership calling St. Lucas to lead their lives. Well, this is, this is, this is telling for us too. Hey, you know, you're going to be at Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas or whatever holiday, and you're going to finally speak up for the downtrodden or the injustice of this thing. And that's happening. And, there are going to be people who are going to be upset with you, but this is what Jesus did, and this is what Jesus calls us to do. No, yeah, it's interesting because I, I I sit with the Pharisees and the people who taught him, right. you know, and and yet if you look at the religious landscape. Again, if you read, do you actually read the Bible, literally? Um, if you look at the religious 
religious landscape. Part of the problem that he had with the Pharisees is they they didn't lead. Mm-hmm. They right. led. They stayed in the popularity place. Mm-hmm. They stayed in the place where there were great crowds and that there were people listening to them. Whether it was out of fear or manipulation is another story. Um, uh, but that's where they wanted to stay in that space. Mm-hmm. And real leadership is like, no, we're going to move beyond the fame into the real stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus does. And that's the problem I think he has with the Pharisees is that you are so willing not to go to the deep stuff of the heart of God Mm -hmm. that you're willing to keep the masses at, well, we don't do this or we don't do that. And that makes it easier. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to me for the first conversation we had about Mark is the, they're looking, they have a litmus test. They have a list of 18 things that you have to do. You have to say the prayer the right way. You have to do this thing. And they're looking at Jesus going, oh, wait. But he said it that, oh, no, that's wrong. Check the book. Yep, that's wrong. You didn't do it the right way. We're not going to follow you. And that, that happens in modern Christianity now, too, right? Mm-hmm. That there's, there's so much of this that you didn't do it the right way. Oh, you know, Jesus doesn't love you, right? Um, that there's this litmus test. And Jesus is pushing up against that, saying, no, the kingdom of God is here. I'm, I'm healing people. I'm doing this thing. And be a part of this. Um, so for me, it also causes us to say, well, we need to remove all of that stuff and, and just begin to follow Jesus and know that it's going to be isolated. Um, at times, but that's what we're called to do and be. Yeah, I like how you said it, it's going to be isolating at times because in Mark chapter 2, there is some really beautiful community that's being created mm-hmm. that I really think Mark is intentionally aiming at his own community. You right. know, what does it mean to approach Jesus carrying someone on a mat and be willing to do whatever it takes to get them there? Um, and of course, Jesus has n- no problem healing the man and says, wow, you've got great friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe fake, we should all right? have good friends like this. Um, and he calls Levi and he goes and eats with him at his house, even while he's still understood to be a sinner. So it almost seems as if the goal for this following Jesus, what does it mean to lead like Jesus, is create the community that gives this kind of joy and support, yes. but be willing to accept when that community doesn't always give you what you need. Uh-huh. It's almost like mm-hmm. um, making peace with the discrepancy between giving and receiving. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's interesting that Mark has Jesus and Jesus would go off alone to pray. Uh-huh. You know, um, so in some sense, Jesus is alone a lot of times when it comes to human beings, but he knows where to go to fill his own mm-hmm. cup. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I just think that that's an interesting dichotomy is be willing to give and be prepared sometimes to have to go find your own um, fulfillment, mm-hmm. which is, is a weird thing to talk about. You know, uh, sometimes. And yet so incredibly healthy. I mean, (laughs) you know, I mean, uh, this community, I'm willing to take you, I will take you and carry you, and I will dig up a roof to get you to Jesus. But Mm -hmm. Jesus Mm -hmm. is ultimately the one that's going to heal you, not me. Oh, that's good. Or I'm willing to get on the mat, and I need you to take me to Jesus, Mm -hmm. which is a whole different place. (laughs) And you're giving directions. All right, now turn here. Mm -hmm. And and all you can do is surrender to the mat. Mm -hmm. But Jesus is the one that's going to heal you. And I think there's a a part where, you know, you learn the story, you live it in community, you rehearse it, but then you do go out in the world, and you, you lead it, but you lead it understanding that you and Jesus still have work to do on your own and that the community it does not replace that personal relationship and that personal calling um, and and that we can't get everything we need in health 
emotionally, spiritually, and physically from others. At some point, it's just Jesus and I in the pit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus wasn't outsourcing, uh, you know, right. his fulfillment Correct. to the crowds. Correct. Because if that had been the case, as soon as they started to disperse, we wouldn't have had any more gospel. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really important. I think it's it's interesting because I think it's 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 so in our nature to fight with reality sometimes. <laughs> and I have heard a lot of people in churches of all kinds of stripes say, well, I left that church because they didn't do this or this, or they weren't there when I needed them. Or, And I'm not saying that those aren't sometimes legitimate criticisms, right. but at some point, right. um, we have to be willing to stop fighting with what is instead of, uh, you should have been there for me. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to take that control over our own emotions and be like, what am I going to do and who am I going to be? And I feel like Jesus right here is that really good role model that we need to just be like, look, people are going to fall away. I'm going to give everything I have sometimes and people are going to give very little back. Mm. And what do we do then? Mm. Right. Like, I think that's a really honest question, and I think it's not just for ministers or people in churches, but I think that's a deeply human question. Mm-hmm. Well, and is there an understanding, too, of a reciprocity that we can never match with Jesus? I mean, does that set us up for the fact that, you know, as much as we are co-creators with God, the reality is there will never be, we can never outgive or ever outcreate or ever outneed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and I think there's a sense of that of, you know, you've, you've got to see your place in this. And and if Jesus needed it, I, I probably need it too because mm-hmm. I'm not that great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but thinking about that and thinking about how different, I don't know, our experience of loneliness versus Jesus' experience of loneliness might have, might have been. I think that like a popular uh, symbol of loneliness is I feel like an island. Right, mm-hmm. Jesus probably felt like the ocean, mm-hmm. right? Aww. And what is the loneliness of the ocean of never really being able to be understood, never, re- but at the same time touching all things, right? Touching all things and being amongst all things, but never being understood and be and still being a person. And the wow. thing is, is mm. it loneliness where, I mean, a lot of times I'm lonely, I'm on an island and I need to be understood. I mm-hmm. really, well, I'm so broken and mm-hmm. I need to be understood. And Jesus is like, I'm never going to be understood. Right. And I don't have to yeah. be understood right. because this is what I'm supposed to do. And, and is there a place where we can shift into ourselves of, yeah, leadership and discipleship, there are going to be things that are, it's just the way it is that mm-hmm. there are going to be times where I'm lonely mm-hmm. um, and that's okay. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong. That's actually just a part of life. Mm-hmm. Well, and if, even if we look at the history of the church, when we look at monastic orders, yeah. mm-hmm. when we look at the practices that we have in Lent and prayer, those are there. There's a space there that is made for a type of divine loneliness, mm-hmm. and that it's not necessarily bad. And I think that's one of the things that we yes. we tend to hierarchy our our emotions, and we talk about which ones are good emotions and bad emotions. And loneliness is bad. Community is good. Feeling connected is good. Feeling disconnected is bad. And yet, I wonder because we know that Jesus goes to these lonely, deserted places to pray. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder where is the place that the church makes intentionally for people to experience loneliness in a positive way? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is it bad? Is it it the difference between loneliness and solitude? Mm. I just throw that out there. Mm. 
I, interesting. I think that for, I, I think the first hurdle before you even create the place is to create the value, oh, <laughs> right, which is, right. which is kind of what we're talking about. I remember in seminary, one of the things that, um, we were offered, um, is once a semester, uh, the local, um, monastery would invite all of the students for a reading weekend and, um, we could go and we could have a free room and they would feed us and all of this. And the monastery was a silent monastery and you would go and, um, the meal times were also silent. One of the, one of the brothers would actually be reading the whole time, um, while you were, were eating. So there was something there, but meal times were silent. Everything was silent except for one room that was sort of the, during certain times of day, you could come and, and interact with other people. And me, my like Enneagram three overachiever self was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to get so much done. I'm going to go get all of my, like, I'm going to get ahead on my reading. I'm going to get ahead on my work. And I remember getting there and for three days I just slept. Mm. I just slept. Mm. I could not, when I would wake back up, I would just, I would go to the meals, I could not in that space do the intellectual work. And I think there was something about that space. It was what I needed. (laughs) It was what my body needed. It was what my mind needed. It was what the overachiever grad student needed was to be, whether you want to call it lonely, I never went to the the room with everybody else. I pretty much stayed in my little, little hole and, and just slept. And I wouldn't have done that back at my, my, um, house. I wouldn't have done that in any other setting. So there's something about creating a space in which silence and solitude are valued Mm -hmm. that starts you to even be able to then do the work that you need in the midst of that. For me at that time, it was sleep in another time. It might have been wrestling with something personally. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there is something about when you create the space, you also have to, you also create the value for it. But I don't know how we give people that value because our our value is around noise and busy pr- productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, the urgency, the immediately right. right, 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 right. Mark. Well, to to talk about that very specifically, and what Jen asked earlier, is it about solitude? Mm-hmm. Is it about as opposed to loneliness? I think that as we as we go through the gospel. And we see Jesus reach the pinnacle of loneliness on the cross when he says, right. God, you've abandoned me. Mm-hmm. And God doesn't respond. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, he does ultimately by raising Jesus from the dead, but we got to wait for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tend to see that loneliness as a form of sacrifice. And so mm-hmm. I do see it as a real loneliness mm-hmm. of I would rather have <laughs> community and connection, but I am willing to be alone for the sake of something that is more important. Mm-hmm. And for Jesus, it's a, it's a sacrifice on behalf of others. Yeah. How, where are places where we are called to loneliness on behalf of others? Where mm-hmm. have you had to go and be alone or stand where you are alone um, because you're being called to do it for someone else? Mm-hmm. So Jad and I, um, over the years, have partnered often um, with people facing addiction Mm -hmm. Um, and because we've both lived with that in our own, you know, um, spheres of influence. And it's interesting for me because I've said to many people, um, and, and I know this through my own faith journey, not, not from addiction, but just other things I went through. There is a, there is a place 
where if we don't surrender to the loneliness, Mm -hmm. we will never understand what it means to be saved by God. Where we, when at some point when we're in an addictive space or we're in a, a, a difficult spiral of brokenness or sin or however you want to mention it, and we're falling down the pit and people keep saving us and getting in the pit with us. Mm-hmm. All they're doing is, is, is prolonging being, the pit. They're prolonging <laughs> the pit and they're prolonging the opportunity for me to get so lonely that the only person I have to turn to is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. and I, and so, yes, it's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of being vulnerable and courageous enough to let other people hit their bottom. Mm-hmm. Because the only person that can be at the bottom of the pit is with Jesus. That is really interesting. And so, like, this is the thread for me so far in these last few weeks is that uh, Jesus will meet us in all as a rough, rough tumbling in the touch, and and in our our loneliness that um, marks Jesus is I can relate there too. Jesus will meet me there. Too. Yeah. And we, and we say, you know, that, that space I just talked about, we say is for people who are addicted or people who are dealing with brokenness or sin, but it should be the place of discipleship too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As me as a growing disciple, there are places in my life that I need, I need to just fall into the arms and be lonely and have Jesus meet me and grow me up mm-hmm. and heal me up. Mm-hmm. And as disciples, we're not willing to go to those places sometimes. Mm-mm. There's a common theme in all of this, too, of discomfort. Mm-hmm. And it's different kinds of discomfort. Because yeah. my discomfort with um, touching a leper is different than my discomfort and loneliness yeah. is different than the discomfort of discipleship. Um, and yet, they're all a version of discomfort. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, the summary for me in a lot of this is that the gospel, um, Jesus, faith... Is not about seeking comfort. Yes. Period. Yes. (laughs) And so often that is how it's framed. Mm -hmm. I I was talking to a friend who had lived in a monastery and uh, we were talking about, and I said something about, well, wouldn't you get really lonely? And he said, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And and I said, well, what do you do when you're really lonely? He said, I'm lonely. Uh, what if we just accept that oh, I'm lonely? That is so uncomfortable. <laughs> and again, like we're not wrestling with what is. We're not fighting against reality. What if we're just saying that part of being human is being willing to experience all the emotions and just let them come and be? And I feel like Jesus is such a great model for, oh, God's left me. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say God left me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to cry out. And then I'm going to mm-hmm. die alone. Mm-hmm. But that's... That is the reality of the cross, which made way for the beautiful reality of the resurrection, you know, for God's ultimate stamp of approval that this is the human being who has done it right. Um, So we do believe in that beautiful redemption of the story, but there's no way around those lonely paths. Yeah. Um, this is, this is, I love this church because this church loves Lent and we're not there yet, but this is a great time to start preparing ourselves for what Lent is going to look like. Um, I think this is the perfect timing to start thinking about that. And, and I think some people do Lent well, but, 
but sometimes we, we really like Lent because we know the end of the story. Yeah. Um, and so we're willing, we're willing to do six weeks of something that feels uncomfortable because we're, we're actually, we're actually only thinking about Easter. We're not really thinking about Lent. We're going through Lenten motions because we know Easter's coming. But what if we did Lent this year pretending Easter wasn't coming? (laughs) What if we actually in our head said, what if, th- what if I don't know that? Just put it to the back. Willing suspension of disbelief, as yeah. we say in the, mm-hmm. the literary world. Um, it, wh- what would that be like? Because then you would have to go, oh, I'm, I'm lonely, and that's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. So Uncomfortable next- silence. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that leads us to next week. <laughs> talk about the emotional Jesus. So this is fun, (laughs) y'all. I hope you will continue to listen to next week. But no, spend some time, especially, uh, ironically enough, in your life together groups (laughs) talking about loneliness. And what does that mean? And is there, yeah, is there a a cultural taboo that we've created for loneliness um, that that makes people afraid of it? And Mm. what does it mean to follow Jesus into that and to recognize it's a part of our space of learning as disciples? So thanks you guys for the conversation and we'll see you next week.